Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. So how do you go about raising a child without imagination? It seems like our culture knows the answer. Anthony Esselin is here to teach us how to avoid raising children in a harmful way. Let's join Anthony and the MOS crew for this conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin, the weekly podcast that hosts a casual conversation about things that count. The usual gang's all here. I'm here with my friend uh, Todd Pruitt and Amy Bird. This week we have a special guest. We are very honoured to have uh, Professor Anthony Esselin with us. Uh, Tony is Professor of English at Providence College uh, and uh, lives in Rhode Island with his family. Tony is arguably one of the, the few true polymaths left or few true polymaths that I've ever come across. Uh, not only is he a professor of English, he's also produced a translation of Dante's a Divine Comedy, not just translated it, but provided excellent explanatory notes that's published uh, by the Modern Library, and has also produced two very thought-provoking and provocative books on childhood, uh, Ten Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child and Life Under Compulsion, Ten Ways, uh, ten, uh, ways to Destroy the Humanity of Your Child. Um, Tony, it's great to have you with us today. It's great to be with you all. Thanks for joining us. Well, let's just say I'm a, a new parent and I've, I've got a child. <laughs> what are the first things I should be doing to try to destroy that child's imagination? What would you recommend as, as something that I need to do in order to wipe out any vestige of imagination or humanity my child might have been born with? Um, well, the first thing that you ought to do is to forget that that child is a child. Um, you got to keep in mind what human beings are made for. Human beings are made to fit in to a great economic political machine. Um, you've got to get the child mechanized as soon as possible. And that includes uh, putting the child into a kind of um, uh, um, social mechanism, right? Uh, the, you, you, you have to because you're looking forward to Yale and a prestigious <laughs> job. And death, right? You have to pad the resume already, um, so you've got to pick the very best uh, asylum for the child. <laughs> I use the word asylum advisedly because apparently that is the word, as asilo, is the word in Italian to describe daycare center. Oh. Um, I, I think it's nice. I think it works it's in English. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, I had the pleasure yeah, of... You must remove the child from natural environment. Uh, uh, the company of his parents as much mm, as possible. Keep him and, indoors. And natural. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you lecture a, a, a month or two ago at uh, St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia, and you quoted a part of Dante's Divine Inferno from Canto Three, the bit where Charon arrives to take away the lost souls into hell. Uh, Woe to you, you crooked souls. Give up all hope to look upon the sky. And you commented that that was perhaps the most terrifying line in the Inferno. And I think it connects with, with what you just said. Can you remember how you glossed that in the lecture at St. Charles Seminary? 
Yes. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted that you remembered that mm. and remembered even how I translated it. Mm. Um, the, the Italian is non sperate mai vedere lo cielo. And uh, cielo in Italian uh, as himmel in German and ciel in French, they do double duty as uh, words that signify heaven or sky or the skies. In English, the heavens, that is the skies above. And uh, I thought everybody else had translated it as heaven, which is perfectly fine. But I thought if I translated it as sky or skies, the idea of heaven will be implicit in that, and I will clinch one of the most terrifying aspects of, of hell, which is that the natural human tendency um, to stand upon the earth and look at the skies above, especially the stars above, is thwarted. Um, so imagine imagine a, a low ceiling above your head, um, the low ceiling of the kind of life that we give ourselves these days, uh, a life of materialism and um, political action fitting in um, and never really looking up uh, spiritually or even corporeally at, at the heavens that's what you want to do to your kid as soon as possible you want to <laughs> fix the ceiling over the kid's head um, preferably a drop ceiling pocked with those little marks that you, I, I, have a, I have a terrifying vision of myself dying in a hospital ward having to count the having pock count marks yeah. on a square of uh, drop ceiling styrofoam yeah uh it, it, anyway that the the, the the whole idea of the book may be contained in that right you, you want to you, you want to train up children who never do look up um mm. because they're too busy or because they've been trained to look down uh or to look onto screens or, or something of that sort right. or to look you want themselves. to rub out wonder right I wonder if if you could unpack. I'm really fascinated by by this, and I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more as far as common ways that you are seeing um, that this is happening. This mechanization, if you like, of of children. What what are some specific things that we're doing to mechanize them in this way? Well, um, <laughs> I could speak all day about it. Just got, I just got a, 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 a message from somebody who leads a Boy Scout troop. Um, this is a Christian pastor, and I'm not sure that I agree with his continued association with the Boy Scouts, but um, uh, he, uh, he is going to take the boys out on um, camping trips this summer, and he's set a rule, which is that there will be no cell phones or iPhones mm -hmm. with the boys on the camping trip. And if a boy comes with one of those, they'll be con it'll be confiscated. Yeah. And maybe even a demerit or two to be levied. And um, he's gotten considerable pushback from parents about this. Uh, one of them said, without any consciousness of irony, that uh, this was not realistic because the boys are joined at the hip to these devices wow. uh, yes well precisely right that that's why above all we need to remove them from them yeah. and frankly I do not know uh, I really do not know why children have these devices mm. uh, is it because we think that they are never safe unless they can call home immediately is that it 
maybe that could be justification for a very modest cell phone. I don't know. Yeah. But I certainly would not have them within reach of um, the Internet. Yeah. As a parent, as a parent, I'm convicted by that just because I am a little too obsessed with my child's safety, I think. And, um, you know, being able to know where they are at all times and and you see these news stories and, um, you know, even the word Boy Scouts has connotations to it now uh, that, you know, abuse maybe. So um, these are things we need to hear. I think one of the one of the things you mention in your book, 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child is never ask them to cope with the gruesome. And that's, yeah. that's something that, you mm. know, as, as a mom, I think about a lot with my kids. You know, what am I exposing them to too early? But there is a sense where they need to cope with the gruesome. We just had a, a, a young boy over who wanted to watch Star War, the new Star Wars movie with my son. Yeah. And um, his mom didn't think he was ready to watch it yet mm. because it was too gruesome. How old? Uh, 11. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and that's what we were like, that's what me and my husband were thinking. We're like, what the hell in the world? <laughs> the problem but, is that 11, at 11 yeah. years old, unless these parents are um, very watchful, at 11 years old, those boys have already seen things yeah. on screens that would beggar the imagination. I almost said bugger the imagination <laughs> um, uh, of, of any living human being on Earth. Mm. Before the day before yesterday. Mm. Well, that's, that's uh, what what, what I, I really want to impress upon people is that the most dangerous thing that they can do to their kids, the most harmful thing that they can do to their kids, is to uh, try to protect them against all danger. Mm. Um, this is a, this is a weird form. This is a weird analog to the the push for safe safe sex. Mm. That was always nonsense. Sex right. can never be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, we Christians believed what everybody until the day before yesterday believed that sex is meant for marriage and not for not for pleasure outside of marriage, not for hedonism and irresponsibility. Um, but by its very nature, sex is not safe. Sex is dangerous. Um, it must be so because of what the act entails. Well, something an- analogous can be said about about life and about a kid's life. Um, when, uh, when I was a kid, we were already, I think, moving in the direction of making sure that kids are safe at all costs and at all times, and yet we hadn't moved completely in that direction. So it was expected that kids would be outside unsupervised. There were a lot of eyes casually upon the kids because people were at home. Right. Um, so it's not as if, if when the kid was outside, the kid was in a neighborhood in which there were no human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were plenty of human beings around, but there was no special supervision. And that meant that um, if you were a kid and you were a little bit adventurous, you might have the run of the town, uh, the next town over, right. on either side, uh, and of the mountain behind, and the woods, and yeah. things like that. And that, that was good. I think it's especially necessary for boys. Um, they, they need that. Mm-hmm. They need that more than they need safety. It, it hmm. it's uh it's a danger not to be exposed to risk. Hmm. Wow. Do you think there's a, a sort of Pascalian aspect to this, Tony? That you know, Pascal is very, very uh clear about filling our lives with all kinds of garbage in order to 
in order to prevent ourselves dwelling on on the more important aspects of life, particularly mortality and uh, death and judgment. Do you think that that there's an element of that in what's going on in modern society? Oh, yes, absolutely. uh, T.S. Eliot's line, I think, I think I actually quoted it in one of the books, distracted by distraction (laughs) from distraction. (laughs) It's... uh, I, that that could that could have come straight out of Joseph Pieper, mm. whom uh, Eliot promoted. Mm. When we got an English translation of Leisure, the Basis of Culture, Eliot published it and wrote a foreword to it. Um, the last thing we want is to be in a room alone, quiet, sitting by ourselves, mm. because then we might think. And And it's the same thing with kids, right? The last thing we want is for the kid merely to be outside, because then the kid might think. Um, we don't want thought. We really don't want thought. <laughs> we don't, certainly don't want wonder. I mean, my gosh, uh, sometimes when I was a kid, very often, uh, I would go into the woods by myself with the dog. Yep. And what do you do when you're alone in the woods with your dog? You think about things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You think about things. You're not online. Um, you're not sending LOL messages. <laughs> R-O-F-L-M-A-O messages. <laughs> You're not you're not uh, uh, acting the part of a sublingual creature, uh, you know. So somewhere in between the innocence of a dog and the uh, aphasia of a madman, yeah. um, you're not doing any of that. You're just a human being confronting the universe mm-hmm. with a dog. Is there anything better in life as a, as a child? It's almost like we think the opposite now. We think we're, we're giving our children wonder when we give them a device, you know, and to explore the, the inter- internet yeah. no, instead no, of to look is, up at the sky. It's entirely the opposite. It's yeah. entirely the opposite. And eventually, eventually the neurologists and the clinical psychologists will come around mm-hmm. um, and, and, and say what everybody really does in his heart of hearts. No, that is, even if you're talking about reading a book, um, the experience of reading a book, let us say, outdoors, with a thing in your hands, turning the pages, and then sometimes setting it down, is a completely different physical experience mm-hmm. and spiritual experience. It's different. Yeah. Um, you have, when you're looking at something on the screen, you have no physical memory of it. You have no kinetic memory. Uh, that is, turning a page, sticking your thumb inside a page going back to the previous page because you just realized that you weren't paying attention to the last two paragraphs. Um, a visual memory of your own fingerprints on the pages, of the typeset, of the cover, of the dog-eared pages, none of that. Yeah. Um, and no real encouragement to ponder. The encouragement when you're looking at a screen is to move. Yeah, be data gatherers, you know. Yeah, they'll come around. It'll be 50 years from now. I'll be dead. They'll come around. <laughs> well, you do talk uh, about the benefits of the vague. That's what I'm thinking about right now as you're talking about that. Um, and, and I know that my children have those skills because when I ask them a question where I need a concrete answer, <laughs> boy, are they good at giving me vagueness <laughs> then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when they're encouraged in all that in school. Um, school teaches them, among other things, to write very badly. Mm-hmm. Now, the best of my students write English badly. <laughs> They're about a quarter of my students. The rest of them write no known language. 
<laughs> wow. It's it's uh, um, it's an instilled aphasia, and uh, they, they didn't have it when they were ten. Um, they were probably still capable of writing a sensible sentence when they were ten years old. It would not have been sophisticated, but it would have been English. Right. I do remember. By the time they are 18, they are no longer writing English or any known language. <laughs> I do remember, you, like, my know, sophomore I, year in high school, like, being asked or being told by my honors professor in English that I was not allowed. Like, I had this list of rules. I couldn't use contractions. I couldn't use personal pronouns. And it stifled me so much as a writer. And I see, you know, different genres you you write differently, right. but then I got into my AP class, and he said, "Throw out, you know, my other professor for that said, throw all that out the window. You know, that's making yeah, you a bad second, writer." The second one was correct. The first one is idiot. The first uh, one didn't know what he was talking about. Right. I, I, I've, I've now concluded. I've now concluded that there that there are only two things wrong with our schools, and you'll notice I didn't say public schools. Mm-hmm. There are only two things wrong with them. All of the things that the kids don't learn there. And all of the things that they do. <laughs> I don't even know the schools are fine. I have to unteach my students. I mean, the students come to me, they say, well, we learned we're never supposed to begin a sentence with the word but. Right. I say, look, here's a copy of my King James Bible. I'm going to open it at random somewhere in the Gospels. And I look and my eye glances on, on the page. You know, you, you have heard it said, uh, you have heard it said that you are to love your friends and hate your enemies, period. <laughs> but I say to you, and I said, listen, if it's good enough for Almighty God, <laughs> it's crazy, it's crazy. And they learn no grammar. Grammar as a systematic subject is gone. Mm-hmm. So, so they're afflicted with a kind of aphasia. There's almost no remedy for it. Uh, I mean, it's, there, it's I, I told a student of mine the other day, you've got, um, you've got people in California who, uh, uh, whose parents come over from Mexico, they speak a kind of substandard Spanish in the home, but they don't read Spanish. And then they go to school and they're not given English grammar, uh, so they end up speaking and uh, writing a substandard English. And it's really devastating because they become illiterate in two languages. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sort of a bi-illiteracy, mm-hmm. a bi-sublingual. And by the time you're 20, I don't know that there's any any remedy in that. I don't know if it can be fixed. And um, with a lot of my students, the, the business about writing, if you think about written English as its own language, I don't know if it can be fixed. Yeah. With some of them, it can be fixed. Um, if they read good books and absorb the, the ways, the habits of, of the masters. But otherwise, I, I think it's open. I mean, it's like t- trying to teach a college professor how to write English well. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so let, let me ask you a related question, but but also straying into a, to another area. As we think about, for instance, the, the, the sorts of things that are going on that we see demonstrated, for instance, in, in North Carolina right now, the gender chaos, et cetera. Um, you mean, um, you, you'll excuse my uh, <laughs> frankness, cross-crapping. There you go. <laughs> I, I, I think I think we can allow that on mortification. Um, well, what what is the, what do you see this doing to the moral categories of our of our young ones? The young people are entirely confused. Yeah. Um, this is now a fad. 
it's the uh, it's the ugly social sexual equivalent of hula hoops and mood rings and um, the Elvis Presley craze and other such stuff. Yeah, um, there's no reason to it. It's a kind of mass madness, um, a sort of craze that has come over people. And um, the more you are, um, the more you are fed the, the little spritzes of sublanguage and subthinking from websites and uh, Facebook and email messages and so forth, the less you're able to withstand this. I mean, these are our kids and ourselves too. Uh, they have no good books to turn to. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't, they see this and they can't turn in their minds to Chesterton, um, who would have had a field day with all of this. <laughs> uh, they, they can't turn in their minds to Samuel Johnson. They don't even know who he is. Right. They've never heard his name. They, 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 um, they've got, well, they've got no real learning. And they've got no real, quiet, abiding appreciation for the beauty and the dignity of the human body and the sexes. That's all been blasted out of them, too. Mm -hmm. um, they, have, they have no fallbacks. So they, they, they're easy prey, easy prey for every stupid fad that comes along. Wow. Mm, yeah. That's very sobering, very sobering. You did, a, 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 again, a kind of related to that last point, Tony, an article you wrote for the Witherspoon Institute uh, a couple of years ago now had a huge impact on me when I read it. It really clarified a lot of issues for me. I think it was called The Moral Structure of Pedophilia. Oh, my uh, gosh. In which you Thank you very much. I, I, I had thought that, that 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 article just fell into a well. And oh, no, you oh, sent no. it to all of us. I've, I've distributed yeah. that to friends. I, I didn't come across it at the time. I came across it relatively recently when... Uh, doing some some work for a book that I'm that I'm thinking of writing, uh, and I think in in fifteen hundred words there, you captured so much of the of the of the problematic nature of what's going on at the moment. And I was particularly fascinated by the comments you made about divorce in that article. I don't know if you if you recall them, but you. Yeah. Oh, you I remember. I mean, perhaps you'd like to elaborate for our listeners a, a little bit on that. But the idea of, of divorce as a form of child abuse fascinating. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we know this, too. We, we do know it. Now, I'm not talking about separation from uh, uh, a person who is criminal, who may do bodily harm or moral harm, grave moral harm to the kids. There, you just you need to get them out of the danger. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that is not why people get divorced. Um, not primarily. Primarily they get divorces because they're bored with their marriages or because they are themselves selfish or, you know, they can't put up with the weakness of their partner or their spouse. So um, the, it, it, it hit me um, when, uh, the, when people were talking about the sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church, uh, several things hit me. One is they're, they're unwillingness to admit that much of their disgust with the whole thing stemmed from the homosexual nature of uh, the large, the great majority of the abuse cases. Yeah. But they didn't want to say that. They didn't want to say that. Right. Um, and because of the uh, particulars of the homosexual nature, that is, we're not talking about forcible rape of small boys. We're talking about seduction 
of um, of uh, uh, prepubescent and post post pubescent boys, um, boys who, for the most part, had the physical capacity to, you know, punch the guy and get out of there. So we're talking about something like seduction. They didn't want to admit that hmm. because to admit that would be to actually engage the question of what is good for boys in particular. Um, and they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to do that because we've been dumping on boys horrifically for 30 years now um, and treating them in a shabby way. And then I thought, you know what? Um, the basic the basic premise of the pedophile is that his sexual gratification is more important than the innocence of the kid. Mm-hmm. So in his twisted way, he says, he says, the kid is going to be better off because of this really going to be better off because I'm teaching the kid the ropes and so forth. That's what they do. Yeah. But that's not the only thing that adults do to kids that is bound up with sex that redounds to the harm of the kid. Because most people, thank the Lord, the enormous majority of people are not sexually attracted to kids. So what do they do to make kids' lives miserable that is all bound up with sex? And as soon as you ask that question, the question almost answers itself. You, you, you get a flood of answers, right? Um, I don't care about the innocence and uh, of the health of kids. And because I don't care about it, I have porn all over the place, right? Um, I, I, oh, sure, my son is not going to get at them. They're underneath the bed, the magazines. Well, of course, he's going to get at them. Or, well, you know, they're going to see that sometime or other. I don't really care. Uh, or, well, you know, it's only a movie, so forth. Mm. Or... You know, my kids will be better off. My kids will be better off because of, of my divorce, because I'm bored with my husband. Uh, but my kids will be better off because if I'm not happy, they can't be happy. And it never occurs to people to say, gee, you know, if my kids are going to be unhappy, how can I possibly be happy? Mm. No, no, no. It doesn't work in that wow. direction. It doesn't work in that direction. So it, it, the structure is the same, right? I want something. I want to be gratified in some way. I want it, and I'm going to have it. And I will think of some way to justify it, come around to say that actually the kids will be harmed and even might be better off because of it. And there you see the same structure of reason justifying one kind of harm to the kids as justifies supposedly this other kind of harm to the kids. So everybody had uh, had to hang their heads and say, um, yes, I am guilty of making children unhappy because of something uh, sexual that I have committed myself to. There'd be a lot more than pedophiles. Mm. Yeah, that was and, a... and there wouldn't be enough wardens for the prisons to hold us all. Mm. Mm. Um, and that would include people. I mean, basically every every sexual sin, every sexual sin is in some fashion a sin against marriage and the family. Right. Um, and... Uh, you know, I wonder why people who have accepted the sexual revolution can uh, hold their heads and say, oh, you know, I'm perfectly innocent. I I would never do that to kids. Mm-hmm. No, never. The only reason why they would never do that to kids is that they happen not to be attracted to that action. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if they had been, they would do it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the conclusion that I came to. It's not yeah. a very happy that was a devastating. I mean, as I, as I said, that was to me. It was a devastating article, and it, it transformed the way I thought about issues of consent, sexual morality, paedophilia, 
divorce. And it's, you know, it's about, I guess, about 1,500 words. I recommend any listener to go to the Witherspoon Institute website, uh, look up public discourse, sign up for the daily public right. discourse briefings, but uh, search for, for Tony Esselin's name there. And, and that's not the only great article he's written there, but that is a particular well, Thank you. Important public discourse is, is a wonderful, wonderful Yes, it is. Yeah. It's an absolute lifeline, I think, yep. in, in the current day. And kudos to Matt Frank and the guys for... Mm-hmm. Uh, for doing that and we will actually link that from our website as well yeah, when, the, when the post goes up wow well you've given us a lot to think about today tony thank you so it much just for, the surface. i know yeah, exactly. we've just like we're just wetting the palette here and i i do want to recommend also for our listeners to um to read your book 10 ways to destroy the imagination of your child and it kind of has that screw tape letters um twist to it there as we started out. Which the, the Fox podcast. and Friends people did not understand. <laughs> they, they didn't understand that, did they? they didn't quite we we they would recommend. They their heads like intelligent Labrador retrievers. <laughs> <laughs> like and then look up that clip on Google and have a little laugh. We <laughs> will we will link that clip yes. of Tony yeah, on Fox News that, on the website when it goes out. It is for, a classic. For our listeners' I entertainment. I could see their faces. They, they thought that I was making fun of them, but I, I didn't. <laughs> I only saw it afterwards. I had no video there, only the audio. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Only Ryan Anderson has been pulled quicker, I think, from the television. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ryan, Ryan is the most dangerous man in America. Um, there you go. He's, yeah. he's just provided with too much common sense. Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, thanks and, for and so much for talking to us. I, I, hopefully, we, maybe we can have you on to, to go a little deeper next time as well. I, I love it. I, I think we, I, we, we haven't even gotten the thing. I know. <laughs> I know. And that's the bad thing about the medium of like a you know 25-minute podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, poetry. We haven't gotten to poetry. <laughs> <laughs> And we're and we're gonna have to find a way to hear you quote more Dante in, in Italian. So yes, exactly. we'll, we'll figure know, that out. You to, what you want me to quote is Milton. Oh, because okay. I, I I set myself some years ago to memorize Paradise Lost, and I had to set it down when school started in September. But I had uh, up until about a third of the way through Book Five memorized. Wow! And so wow. I can do a wicked. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow. Oh, man. Okay. Well, hopefully we've just introduced a, a whole new audience to you as well. I just thank you so much again for coming on. And um, I want to thank the listeners. And um, please visit our website, uh, mortificationofspin.org. And we'll have some fun links for you there and some important ones to read from Tony Esselin as well. So thanks for listening. With a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it. Want to change the world There's nothing to it Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. 
It's so important to train your children right, especially at a young age. This week we're offering a message, children and parents, at our website, mortificationofspin.org. Head over and listen to that message to find out a little more about how Christian parents should be raising their children. And come back next week for this conversation. So one of the reasons we appeal to tradition in positive ways is because there were smart, godly, Bible-saturated men back then that we ought to listen to. And so if somebody wants to depart from Nicene orthodoxy, the burden of proof is on them to prove that those men were wrong. There are good ways we can invest in lay people teachers as well. That We're talking about all this academic language, but there are some basics. We have our confessions. We who claim to take the scripture seriously seem to find ourselves now in a tradition where great chunks of our friends and, and co-belligerents in, in the gospel mm-hmm. stand outside the historic tradition. That's, right. It's quite staggering. That's next time. And please visit mortificationofspin.org to find posts from Amy, Carl, and Todd, and to find children and parents. We'll talk to you next week. You know, the funny thing about that Fox interview is that I bet you, I bet you that I sold more books because of that Fox interview. That's hilarious. Far more. I mean, that, that, that book still has legs. Absolutely. I love it when you see, you can tell there's something going on in the guy's earpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody upstairs is saying, for goodness sake, off. get, get this off. guy off now. <laughs> <laughs> cut, cut, cut. Commercial. So. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it occurred on Black Friday. And I had been sitting there listening to this empty, inane chatter about <laughs> buying expensive things that nobody needs, like a, a five-foot flat TV uh, screen <laughs> at Walmart for $800. And, and uh, I, I, was, I had gotten up real early in the morning. I was in a little bit of a combative mood. <laughs> And so I blurted that thing out about your kid in a blade of grass, blade of grass, more legitimate object of wonder for your kid than anything that he'll see on a screen in a whole year of looking at screens. That probably didn't please them that much. Right.